Hey guys and ghouls, it's another episode of 28 Days Later. I'm your host, Sophie, joined as always by the ebullient Hannah. I was going to say, ouch, long pause. <laughs> I was trying to think of a fun word. But Hannah, long pause. <laughs> hey, 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 I gave you ebullient. Do you know what that means? Um... Um, I'm like that sound in the ocean that nobody can figure out where it comes from. Yeah, you're a real bloop. That's what the word means. Boolean. It's the Boolean sound, right? Isn't that what it's called? Are you thinking of (laughs) beef bouillon (laughs) cubes? No. Is it the sound in the ocean that is totally mermaids? They call it the Boolean. I thought it was called the bloop. I've only ever heard it called the bloop. I I don't know what you're saying. Oh, God. The scientific term for it is a Boolean, uh sound or something okay well the word that i picked to describe you was not that and it in fact means bubbly Hmm. well in that case i'm gonna be super sour this whole time just to prove you wrong you can be sour and bubbly (laughs) true i drink many a sour beers that have both of those things going on i was gonna say in fact it's making a lot of breweries quite rich right now um hannah i I really don't even want to beat around the bush because I feel like this movie was two and a half hours long and we're going to need a lot of time to talk about it. So yes and yes and yes and yes. Yeah. So let's jump in. Hannah, the movie this week was your pick. You selected 2017's The Burn. Nope. Just Burning. It's just called Burning. Mm-hmm. Tell us about it, Hannah. Um, ooh, I like the way you said that. But OK, well, first off, let me say I saw this movie on um, a list of horror movies you might have missed. So I was like, this looks good. Mm-hmm. It's outside of the realm of what some people might watch or is like within our scope in America. So it'll be cool to check this out. I will say watching it, I was like, okay, not really sure this is a horror movie. Um, but I still thought it was like, a worthwhile watch even though it definitely was long um but yeah so burning it's a movie um that the writer director described as being if Faulkner was like a young South Korean man um And it's basically like this um, younger guy is working kind of odd jobs in between working at his family's farm in South Korea. And he runs into a girl from his childhood who hires him to feed her cat while she goes on a trip to a nondescript location in Africa. Um... And then when she's in Africa, she calls him saying she's stuck at the airport and she needs him to come pick her up. And when he picks her up, she brings along this like mysterious Gatsby-esque fellow who she met in the airport. And then the three of them hang out in a somewhat odd love triangle at times. And they smoke a bunch of weed. And then the 
Gatsby fellow um, reveals that he has an affinity for burning down greenhouses, which the other guy, main guy, sort of becomes obsessed with. And through that obsession, begins to worry that something has happened to his friend. Is that a apt description, you think? Yeah, that seems pretty good. I like it. Yeah. You did a great job. Thanks, thanks, <laughs> thanks, thanks. After I watched the movie, I read the Wikipedia um, plot summary because I just wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. <laughs> yeah. No, I love that you... I was shocked that you described the whole movie plot to us without mentioning that the Gatsby-esque character Ben is played by one Stephen Yun, who... Pew, 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 pew. We both love a lot. Hannah is shooting vagina rockets off pew, in pew, his honor. <laughs> um, I literally am looking at a tiny action figure of him in my room right now. For the listeners at home, she's showing me the tiny action figure of Glenn. Nope, you have Glenn, yeah. It's a Funko Pop of Glenn. He's adorable. Thank right, you. This was Glenn. a gift from my college um, roommate because we used to watch Walking Dead together, and I was obsessed with him. And I always promised that if he ever died, I would stop watching the show. And you guessed it. I kept my promise. <laughs> Did you watch the show all the way until Glenn died? Mm-hmm. Wow. I also stopped watching when Glenn died. I, that was the moment where I was like, this show no longer understands the difference between gratuitous violence when you're killing a zombie that is like not a sentient human and killing one of the series' most beloved characters. Yeah, that was tough. I never even watched that episode. I just heard from other people he died, and I was like, I'm out. Never because watch it. It's like, I had nightmares. It was so gratuitous. I, like, I feel dramatic saying this, but I found it traumatizing. I would like wake, I had nightmares for like days afterwards and would also just be like, sitting around doing nothing and the picture of his like broken face would pop into my head and like freak me out that's how upsetting that yeah. episode was with that show i had a real um bad habit of like turning to whoever i was watching with and being like this is my new favorite person other than glenn and then that person would die like that episode or the episode next episode <laughs> um, hannah's hannah liking you is the real kiss of death for real apparently um so one of the people that that happened with was, um, I think his name in the show was Noah, who was mm-hmm. the kid from Everybody Hates Chris. He also oh. died in like a super fucked up way. It was awful. Where, and Glenn like, was with him, right? I'm pretty yeah, sure it was like, Glenn that tried to and save Beth him. Beth was there too, and they had to just like watch him get like his face ripped off in like a revolving door. It was horrible. Um, um, I think our parents might listen to this episode, so this might be I might be blowing up my spot a little bit, but. Jeremy and I lived with our parents for a couple years while I was doing graduate school. We had an apartment in the lower level of their house, and we used to watch Walking Dead with them on Sundays, um, long past a point where I would have stopped watching, I think, if it were up to me. But we kept watching because we appreciated the ritual of watching it with them every week. And I think Noah dying was when I was like, I'm done with the show. Um, but we were still living with them, so we kept watching it. And then after Glenda, I was like, I'm really done now. So... Yeah. Um, anyway, 
now that we've gone down that Walking Dead rabbit hole, Hannah currently has Steve, tiny Funko Steven Yun balanced on her shoulder, uh, and I think she's going to keep him there for the whole episode. Uh, that's what I'm going to go ahead and say right now. So We'll see, but I'm definitely going to try, just because I like... Um, I'm just... I'm actually going to, like... I want his take on the film, you know? I'm going to Yeah, give I would love little, to know what Glenn thinks of this movie. I'm going to give you a little tidbits of what he whispers to me about okay. um, his experience filming the movie. Now, Hannah, since this movie was your pick, I'm going to give you my reactions first, and then mm. we can. Then I want to hear your reactions. So, as Hannah alluded to, this movie is on the longer side. It's about two and a half hours long. And I am going to be totally honest and say that when this movie was over, I was just like, I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> upon further reflection today and reading some articles and allowing myself to admit that it probably didn't work in this movie's favor that I watched it pretty late at night. I'm mm-hmm. also traveling for work this week. So I'm, I've been stuck in a hotel room. I've had a couple really unproductive days. So I just probably wasn't in a place that anything other than like rewatching old supernatural was going to be a fun watch for me. And so, um, Faulkner is hard to read, and I would say going for <laughs> Faulkner in a film is also hard to watch. So yeah, I think that that's fair, for sure. I mean, like this movie is called Burning, and one of the one of the articles I read was like, "If you'll allow me, this movie is a slow burn," which like it is, right? I mean, mm-hmm. ultimately, this movie becomes a mystery movie, but that doesn't happen until like the last half hour, forty five minutes. I mean, most of the beginning of the movie just like a, is like a very long character study. Right. Um, and so I like I texted think, you when I was watching it being like, I might've made a mistake. Yeah. And then I was like, wait, you were like, I don't know. This happening. is a horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like, I think I would really like to rewatch this movie because I think I would like it a lot more watching it a second time because I think it was my estimation of it was so harmed by me being just like tired and bored and being like, when this movie is over, I can go to sleep. And so I was just like angry every time that the movie wasn't over. Um, But that being said, like, I think this is a movie that is really interesting to watch because I have not read any Faulkner. But like Hannah said, um, the the director alluded to that specifically. And then also we have um, the main character in the movie whose name I think is uh, Jong Soo. He is a writer and Faulkner is his favorite writer. Mm -hmm. This movie is based on a short story by Haruki Murakami that's called Barn Burning, mm-hmm. which in turn shares its name with a William Faulkner story called Barn, Bur- Barn mm-hmm. Burning. Um, so clearly like... I the, think that one might have just been called Barn Burn. Oh, maybe it was. Um, Don't quote me on that. Tiny, what? Tiny Glenn doesn't know either. Oh, Tiny Glenn's <laughs> not sure. Okay. Um, but yeah, like this movie is a really interesting watch. And as I finished it and didn't like it, I was like, I don't get it. And I don't like it. I don't know why people like this. And then as I was reading articles about it today, I was like, oh, I see that this is a movie with a lot of ambiguity in it. And I think I read a lot of things that are meant to be ambiguous. I read them as concrete fact. And so I Mm -hmm. got to the end being like, whatever, I don't get it. And then I was like, oh, if any one of those things is uncertain, then the whole movie is a lot more interesting. And yeah. I just was not in a headspace to be open to that. Um, so yeah, yeah that's I think like, yeah. that's sort of why I, I went through and reread the plot 
mm-hmm. summary because it is very ambiguous and that's very, very Faulkner. So I went through and was like, I'm going to just, I was like, I need to read this and make sure I didn't miss anything. Cause I was like, maybe something was more explicit than I realized. Right. Um, and then reading through it, I was like, nope, it wasn't that that's the point. Also, wait, Sophie, I do think you should take a picture of this. Yeah, so I actually, I read some, I did a independent study in college because I was a literature and film major. I did a f- independent study where I would read a book and then watch the film adaptation of it. Um, and one thing I did was like, um, James Franco did a couple different, I think. This was a couple years ago now, though, so I'm kind of not remembering, but... James Franco did a couple different, like, uh, projects while he was at NYU that were uh, Faulkner novels turned into films. And I found pretty much all of them unwatchable. Um, And I'm also in a camp of people who finds Faulkner, like, nearly unreadable. Um, So for me, normally I'm not a fan of that aesthetic. Um... But I did like uh, burning, and and I guess I found, I guess like sometimes what I find hard with it is like sometimes reading it, it's it's so ambiguous that I can't find something to hold on to enough to ground myself. Um, and so at least within this movie, there was enough for me to kind of like get a lay of the land and feel grounded enough that I could still get involved um but there was there's still definitely like i feel um some level of separation between the audience and the um main character yeah that makes it hard to get as invested as you might well really all the characters Mm -hmm. because they're kind of existing on their own plane like their own existence and we're not really there. Like, we're watching it and experiencing it, but we're not... It's definitely, like, not the same as ours. So it's harder to get as invested in the storyline or the characters because that's not really what it's about. Mm-hmm. It's a bit more like what I would describe as, like, lyrical filmmaking. When it, it's sure. like the music and the atmosphere moves you through a story rather than a specific storyline. Yeah, and I don't know if you got... um, I definitely, in some scenes more than others, but I definitely got, like, a neo-noir vibe from a lot of parts of this Mm. movie. Um, Definitely, that's a good point. Which I totally wasn't expecting, but I found that really compelling. Like, And I think if you break this movie down to its component parts, it fits really well into that kind of narrative where you have, like this guy who falls in love with a woman who's kind of mysterious. And then there's like a third party who's kind of unpinned downable. And then the love interest goes missing and he's trying to figure out like what happened. Um, So Hannah, I think the best way to approach this movie initially might be to just talk about each character one by one. And I'd like to start with the character of Jaime, who is the female love interest who's sort of at the apex of this triangle. I on my first viewing of this movie, definitely read her character as falling into the category of a manic pixie dream girl. And I am open to the interpretation that that's not, that there's more to her than that. But I think like upon uh, first meeting her, she is sort of like, 
she introduces herself to uh, Jung Soo and she said, I don't, you might not remember me, we grew up together. They go on a date and then she says, hey, I'm going to Africa. Will you watch my cat while I'm in Africa? And then she comes back from, and she talks about how she talks at that point and later in the movie about this idea of little hunger and big hunger that like some mm-hmm. people are hungry for food and that's little hunger. And some people are hungry for the meaning of life and that's great hunger. And then in the other scenes where we see her, you know, she's discussing being a part of this dance in a village. I think in Uganda is what she talks about, um, where they're doing like a dance of growing from little hunger to great hunger. And so there are definitely aspects of her personality that read as being sort of like a manic pixie dream girl. And I was very resistant to that. Um, yeah, naturally. I am, I am definitely open to the interpretation that like there is more to her character than that. Like, and I think the more that I think about the movie, the more that I feel like there is more to her than that, because I think we're not supposed to relate to the two male protagonists. I think Having yeah. a manic pixie dream girl kind of necessitates that you are relating to the male protagonist who's into her and you are on the same page as him. Whereas I think like we'll talk about it when we get to Jung Soo, but I think like a lot of the ways that he relates to her are pretty immature and possessive, which like don't line up with her being characterized as a manic pixie dream girl, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, I think that's totally, uh, that totally makes sense. It's like, um, there's definitely a point in the movie too where I was like feeling similarly and then um, I got to a point in the movie too where I was like oh we might also be in a territory of like an unreliable narrator mm-hmm. to an extent so it's like what we're experiencing because we're following what's the main guy's name? Jung Soo Jung Soo I like never remember any characters days for any of these movies this is so bad um but because we're following him and he is experiencing things a certain way there's definitely a point where i was like ooh this could also definitely be a case of what he's experiencing isn't the you know end all be all or it's right. very colored by his experience and that's definitely like, affecting the way that we're seeing things um Sort of reminds me of, like, one of my favorite books I ever read for school was um, kind of, like, in the early days of that even being a possibility. But there's this uh, novel called The Good Soldier. And it's, uh, what is it? Somebody, Conrad. I don't remember. I'll have to look it up. But um, basically... The book, it starts out saying this is the saddest story ever told. And the narrator tells this, like, terrible story about his wife having an affair with a a soldier. But as the story goes on, you learn that he's, like, a very unreliable narrator. And, like, the experiences of the other people around him and the way he's coloring them are very different. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and since this movie was definitely taking um, a lot of cues from literature, um, I thought of that as well because that that movie or that book starts out 
as the narrator being like, this is the saddest story ever, and it's, like, my story, and it's right. really fucked up that this happened to me. Mm-hmm. But then the more you read it, you see how much more it was about, like, the woman's experience mm-hmm. and the man she had an affair with and just, like, the families that were involved, how much bigger it is than just the protagonist. So I definitely yeah. saw that in this as well, like, that same kind of vibe. Definitely. And... And to, on that note, there was an article I read in Vogue that's called Burning is the New Thriller about Toxic Masculinity that You Didn't Know You Needed. And it says... There you go. And it says... This calling is a quote. It a thriller. Yeah, this is a quote that says, At first, Jaime may appear to be stuck in a classic women's role... I'm sorry, it says Gian, which is the actress's name, may appear to be stuck in a classic women's role as Jaime, the wishbone being pulled on by two men. However, she's far more than that. Whenever she's not on screen, the film instantly grows darker and unhappier. This, I think, is deliberate. Lee, who's the director, wants us to grasp that Hey Me is a woman threatened by the desires and demands of two men who don't see her for who she actually is. Filled with free-floating spirit, she becomes the occasion for Jong Soo and Ben to reveal a masculinity that is as toxic as she is life-affirming. Um, yeah, I wrote that down really early on in their the first um like sex scene between them Mm -hmm. the only sex scene between them well yeah i guess the other ones are she's just imagined yeah um there's only one other one i think they're together and he's imagining her yeah so the first sex scene early on and they're they're in it first of all awkward ass sex scene because silence like real quiet and not just like the room is quiet, but, like, they're both really quiet. Too. Yeah. Um, but it I wrote It felt down, like a very true sex scene, though. Like, a very true, like, they're both young and, like... Yeah, they just, like, they get yeah. right down to it. There's not um, any conversation. They're just sort of like, this is happening now. So I wrote down then, though, that, like, the camera movement was very smooth and moved with her. So, like, there's a part where they're sitting up and she goes to lay down and the camera moves with her, almost in, like, mm-hmm. a James Wan kind of movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but then with him, it was, like, stark and disjointed during that scene. And I think that carries throughout. Like, that there's, like, a smoothness and an, and an earthiness to her. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, the two men are definitely like within the way they're filmed they're sort of like awkward pieces in whatever scenery they're in yeah well and like while we're talking about her and the way she's filmed one of the most striking sequences in the film is when uh she and ben show up at jung Su's house and ben brings weed so they all smoke and then it's sunset and she just takes her top off and starts dancing and she has her back yeah. to them and the camera is shot sort of from their perspective. I mean, it's closer to her than she is, than they are. But it's it's shot from her back so that she is backlit. And so she just looks like a black silhouette in front of the sky where the sun is going down. Mm-hmm. And it's a really long extended sequence where she's dancing and there's jazz music playing. And it has like a very David Lynch vibe to it, I felt. Mm-hmm. Um, the music really, yeah. Especially, yeah. And so it's interesting. And like you said, I think we see her, I see her, I saw her as a Manic Pixie Dream Girl, but we get hints in the way that we see the men interact with her that that's not what she is. Because like I said, 
I think for you to have a manic pixie dream girl, the male protagonist has to be like, she's perfect. And we have to be like, you're right, she's perfect. And mm-hmm. I feel like Jung Soo looks at her like she's perfect, but we can see that he is maybe like reading a lot into all of their interactions and also placing her on a pedestal where he doesn't know her that well. Yeah. And on the flip side, we have when they all go to dinner with Ben and Ben's friends and she's telling the story of dancing around the campfire with this African tribe, they're all laughing at her. Mm -hmm. Like he clearly doesn't value her free spiritedness. And so I think it's interesting. I had never really thought about the idea that being a manic pixie dream girl is not just about the way that a female character is characterized herself, but it's also the way that the men interact with her and the way that we are supposed to understand their interactions with her. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, I, and it was funny too, because when I was watching it um, and I texted you saying like, I may, I may have fucked this up. Like I may have made a mistake. This may have not been a good movie. Like right after I said that to you, there was the moment after she does the dance at his house in the country um, where he tells her, where he calls her a whore mm-hmm. and says, like, only whores take their tops off in front of men. Yeah, he says, why do you undress so easily in front of men? Only whores do that. Yeah. Um, and that's, like, the last thing he says to her in the movie, pretty much. Mm-hmm. It is the last thing gets, he says to her. Yeah. And before she gets in the car. Um, But as soon as he said that to her after that scene, I was like, hold up. (laughs) Like, wait, there's stuff we could talk about here. Definitely. Um, Because I think that's such a thing. Like, even in one of my my favorite, favorite, favorite movie of all time is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And that is one of the movies that is always cited with, like, the manic pixie dream girl trope. And um, even though, like, Michelle Gondry was trying to make Clementine, like, more complicated than that, it doesn't doesn't always come off that way. And one of the the hardest scenes to watch in that movie is the last time they saw each other. She goes to a party without Joel. And when she comes home, she's like, you're just trying to figure out if I fucked someone. Mm -hmm. And he says, no, you're wrong. Because I assume you fucked someone. Like, isn't that how you get somebody to like you? And then she leaves. And that's, like, the last thing he ever says to her. Um, And it's interesting because within the context of that movie and how the rest of the movie plays out, that kind of gets lost in it. And you, you know, because they work backwards in their relationship and whatever... Um, but that being a more typical example of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, where you're, like, siding more with him or seeing it more from his perspective, you kind of let that slide. Whereas, like, with this, it seems like, I, or at least I felt, they framed it way more like that was a shitty thing to say. Right. And he regrets it, especially when it's the last thing he says to her. Mm-hmm. That makes it, like, even worse. A hundred percent, Yeah. Especially because she had been, before that, like, telling a story of him, like, saving her um, as a child. And so, and then he keeps, like, hanging on to that. And it might not even be 
a real thing that happened. But he's, like, he was really hanging on to that and, like, bringing that up to other people. Um, I feel like because, like, he can't let go of, like, the fact that, like, that was the last thing he said to her. is like, basically he called her a whore. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because, so when she first, when they first start talking in the beginning of the movie, he is bringing things into town to sell. And she and another uh, young woman are wearing matching outfits and they're sort of like dancing and advertising and trying to get people to come into this big sale, right? Mm -hmm. And she initiates conversation with him. They talk and she tells him that she is Jaime and that they grew up together. And he doesn't immediately remember her and she says something along the lines of like, oh, I had plastic surgery. And then she says, I got pretty, right? Um. And then right before they sleep together, she tells him that when they were growing up, like, he didn't, it seems like he didn't really know who she was, but clearly she knew who he was. And when they were growing up, like, he told her she was ugly. And she said something like, you don't remember, but you crossed the street to tell me that I was ugly. And so... Uh, a different article I read in The Atlantic that's sort of talking about the way that this movie portrays class talks about the way that it may be it may be portrayed in the film that like Jung Soo cares a lot about Jaime but we have at least two examples of these like times where she's really vulnerable where he is shaming her mm-hmm. in ways that are really harsh and cruel um, yeah. and in the case of the thing he said the first time like, clearly had enough of an impact that she got plastic surgery. Like, she is a young girl. Yeah. Um, who has had plastic surgery because of what he said to her when she was growing up, which is, like, a really harmful thing. I remember, like, this is sort of tangential, but a couple months ago, someone that I follow on Twitter posted something like, um, tell me a thing that someone said to you about your appearance when you were a kid that has stuck with you. And I think most of us, um, especially women, can probably identify with the idea that, like, someone may have said something to you about your body when you were younger, that, like, they didn't mean anything by it, and you will never, ever forget it. Like, it is indelibly marked in your brain. Um, And so I, like, my heart broke watching that scene because I totally feel like there are things about myself that, had I had the money, I could have taken taken care of with plastic surgery because people made me feel self-conscious about them. And it makes me sad that like upon first seeing this guy, the first thing she wants is for him to validate that she looks pretty now because he used to think she wasn't pretty. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's also something that really like, um, for me takes you off of away from being like on his side, I guess, like in their interactions. Because he's so, even when he's, like, like it becomes a thing later on that when he's, uh, like, feeding her cat, he masturbates in her apartment. Like. Multiple times. Multiple times. And, like, even that, I was, like, there's something that's so brazen about that. Like, to basically be, like, house-sitting for someone. And I guess it's, like. Yes, you, I mean, you're a person, so you might want to masturbate when you're house-sitting, whatever. But it's, like, he doesn't, like, 
I don't know. It's like it's not like he does it respectfully. Like he just like stands in the middle of the apartment and like jerks yeah. off. Like it's just like every and it's like he looks around the room like everything that's there is there for him. Right. Like he's masturbating to her. It would be different if like you're house sitting for like an old couple who lives next door and you're like masturbating about your own stuff. But like you are masturbating about her in her space and like making and like her what space you think space. she thinks when she's in there, right? Which right. is also like not cool. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that stands as a pretty good transition. Like, let's move on to Jung Soo and talk about his character a little bit because, like I said, I think upon first viewing the movie. Uh, I was not reading a lot of ambiguity into it. And I think I was really like, whether I agreed with him or not, I was sort of going along with him because he's our narrator. Yeah. And I think the more that I sort of mull over the movie in my mind, it's like, yeah, he's our narrator. But A, we don't know that he's super reliable. And B, there's a lot of things he says and does that are pretty problematic. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about him a little bit and his his portrayal and his character. So one thing that um, is introduced early on is that he, he, his family has a house like in the country or a farm really. Um, And he kind of goes back and forth and he does that out of like some form of duty to his family. Well, and I think he's, well, he's living he moves back to the farm. I don't know where he was living at the beginning. Um, but the day that he goes to see her apartment to get instructions to feed her cat, he has all his stuff and she's like, Oh, what's all your stuff for? And he says he's going to stay at, at the family house, which like, we should be very clear. It's not like a country house. It's like his family is a relatively poor family of dairy farmers and he's going to go back and stay on the farm. Yeah. Although I think once he starts cat sitting for her, he's like staying in the apartment too. Oh, I see what you're saying. Going back and forth. Yeah. 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 I just mean like where he is living. Cause I think like there's a really interesting, like I said, this article I read in the Atlantic that sort of talked about the juxtaposition of class in this movie um, it, it was definitely a very explicit choice on the director's part to have, like, Ben is very wealthy and Jung Soo, like, is not and is living yeah. in this, like, dilapidated house that, like, his whole family used to be in and is now responsible for, like, trying to keep his entire family's legacy afloat, basically. Right. Well, and it's... Um, this is maybe jumping ahead, but when they have the conversation where Ben talks about how he enjoys burning down greenhouses, um, Jung Su is sort of like, you just burn down a greenhouse? Like, he's basically like, what about the, the people? Like, what about the people whose, right. like, land that is? Or... Like, what about the consequences of what you're doing? Right. And and in Ben... and But then it's like, the way that Ben talks about it is is, like, it's a greenhouse. It's like devoid of or it's void of like any relation to humanity right so that's also a good example of like where his like Ben's view of things is so colored by his wealth that he's like it's a structure on someone else's land it's not connected to anyone 
And then jung is like, how can you do that? Like, you're burning down a piece of someone else's livelihood. Right. For sure. Even if it's abandoned, it's still, like, on their land. They still have to clean it up. Like, they still have to deal with it. Like, that's a... And that becomes such a, a huge um, theme for the rest of the movie after that. And, like, obsession. Mm-hmm. That yeah. it's, like, really interesting that for Ben, he basically... When he speaks about it, it's almost like he speaks about it like it's a victimless crime. Mm-hmm. Well, he talks... And we'll get about get to this when we talk about Ben. But, like, he talks about his burning houses down like it's a force of nature like he has no control over it and therefore there mm-hmm. is no morality about it because it just is what it is and it's of like course it's not how jung Su scenes it yeah. um yeah i wanted to since i've alluded to it a couple times i want to read you a clip from this atlantic article which says with its striking juxtapositions between the rural and urban embodied by jung Su and ben Burning rejects the glamorization of Asian wealth and the notion of a universal Asian identity as recently depicted on screen in Crazy Rich Asians. Instead, Lee, the director, concentrates his film on the extreme class inequality in South Korea, underscoring the economic desperation that destroys families, ravages homes, and consumes dispossessed individuals. And they talk explicitly about the fact that, like, the short story that this is based on, the the Murakawi short story that this is based on like the jung Su's character in the story is not particularly poor he's just kind of like a like an average joe middle class guy so it was a very intentional choice to have jung Su be a character who's sort of living on the fringes and having to work mm. really hard to like stay afloat right well i mean it's no it's no coincidence that they call ben gatsby Right. It's like the same with Nick uh, in The Great Gatsby where he kind of mm-hmm. like looks out and being like on someone's land and seeing all this wealth. It's like similar where it's like he is he's like staying in um, Jaime's. Uh, wait, is that right? Jaime. Or so, I don't know how Jaime? to pronounce it. Yeah. Jaime's um, apartment or just sort of like being in her orbit and that like shows him this other side of things that he wouldn't have been privy to otherwise. Yeah. And she's sort of an an interesting uh, characterization of wealth as well because we learn from her family that, like, she's only able to travel to Africa and live in this apartment because she has massive amounts of credit card debt. So she's not someone who can afford to live the life she's living. She is living this life at her own detriment, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit before we move into talking about Ben about the relationship between Jung Soo and Jaime, which we talked about with the way that he sort of um, talks down to her. But I think what I took for granted in watching this movie, again, because I think I just wasn't, to be totally clear and, and honest, I wasn't being super critical. Um, but... It is incredibly presumptuous of him to feel like after they went out to dinner one time and had sex one time, she's his girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. So, like, he's automatically really angry at her friendship with Ben, which initially she's just like, this is my friend Ben, who she's, like, spending time with, but it's not like she has not said explicitly that they're dating. And even if she did, it's it's none of his business. Um but then Wait, it's also like that, he doesn't do anything. Right. Like he doesn't yeah. do anything to express interest in her. It's sort of like 
she initiates them having sex. And, and talking she initiates to him. them. Yeah, she initiates them talking. Like, she initiates everything. And mm-hmm. he never does anything to reciprocate that. Like, he just, like, lets it happen, basically. And then, mm-hmm. like, assumes that he's, like, her... Yeah, like you said, like, he just assumes, like, they're together. Right. Or, like, and then that he's, like, entitled to that, which is, like, the, not how that works. <laughs> yeah. And then on top of that, he he says later in the scene where, like, she has danced in the sunset and then she passes out so they take her inside ben confesses about burning down greenhouses and then jung su turns to him and is like i love her and it's like dude you don't know her like you have not spent that much time with her you have not had any meaningful conversations with her about like her interests or what she's about as a person um and so i think that's you love her for how she makes you feel Yes. Is what and you're it's saying. super it's super true. And ben like, kinda I, laughs at that. <laughs> yeah. There's like an interview in The Hollywood Reporter where the director talks about the fact that he wanted it to be really clear that Jiang Su is not always right and like the way that he feels about things is not always right. Um which like I think I took for granted watching it and I was like, I don't like the way that this guy is being really possessive of her, but like I'm not supposed to. Um, you're not mm-hmm. supposed to, I don't think you're supposed to get out of this movie being like, I feel bad for him, you know? Yeah, it, that's also very Faulkner, where it's like the main character's um, motivations and stuff are not selfless. Right. But um, yeah, so I totally let's... agree like with that, where it's like, Especially because it's like, I mean, when you go into a movie, you expect it to go a certain way, in a sense. So you don't always pick up on it right away when it's like, oh, we're doing something different here. We're like, this person that I'm, I am following, we have no choice but to follow because that's who the movie is giving you to right. follow. Like, the more and more you realize, like, this person is not a good person to be following, like, it's sort of, like, unnerving. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. well, I guess I should let you say what you were going to say next. But I kind of wonder what you make of, like, the twist or, like, the turn. Well, before we get to the twist or the turn, let's talk about Ben. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you've sort of alluded to the fact, so Ben is Stephen Yun's character, and Hannah has alluded to the fact that he's a very Gatsby-esque character. Um, Jung Su identifies him as such and sort of and sort of says like there are so many Gatsby's in Korea like so many young yeah. wealthy people who don't understand what everyone else is living with. Um, I found his character like first of all his performance is amazing. <laughs> He's like so charming and aloof, but there is this undertone that is really unsettling mm-hmm. and the, in, obviously intentionally right. We're like we're not sure. Everything he says is like he might just be a super charming rich guy or he might be a sociopath and we can't tell. I'm gonna tell you right now, that scene after they're looking for um the girl and they have the he he catches him like spying on him. He's like, Oh, come to my apartment, I'm having people over anyway. Mm-hmm. He has people over and they're all telling stories and they're joking. And it's, like, a group full of people talking and laughing and whatever, normal party vibe. And Ben is just blankly smiling across Mm -hmm. the room. Mm -hmm. 
I was like, okay, this man is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, and like, so, and that scene parallels an earlier scene where like he and all his friends go out to dinner and they take Jaime and Jung Soo. And when she's telling her story, uh, Jung Soo looks at him and he's yawning. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens in this scene, right? Where like the girl he's dating now is telling a story and everyone's kind of like laughing and like whether they, enjoy her story or not they're sort of like doing the socially appropriate thing and he's just yawning in the background yeah and then he's so disinterested disinterested but it's like but he gives off this like warmth it's Mm -hmm. so weird it's like this absent warmth so like no one notices it because what you're feeling is like a warmth so you're like oh he's engaged he's into this but then his Mm -hmm. body language is like he's yawning He's fucking staring and smiling for so long, and no one is unnerved by that. <laughs> Which yeah, I find definitely. So creepy, like, and that I think too is so much speaks so much more to like the toxic masculinity angle, where it's like two guys fighting over a girl when they're at a certain point. They might not even be fighting over the girl herself because they're more interested in what she means to them and not who she really is. Or mm-hmm. they're just more interested in the competition between the two of them and whoever wins. Right. Right. Like, those are the moments where that really prevails. Because it's like, those are the moments where, like, and for so much of the movie, especially toward the end, it's like, we don't get anything else about her. We don't know what happens to her. We don't know. We don't really get any answers. It's just about them, like, butting heads. Yeah. Or yeah, no, you're dicks. definitely right. <laughs> um, I don't want to rush us, but I also feel like when we talk about the character of Ben, there is a little bit less to dig into just because so much of his character is a blank slate. And not in a bad way. It's just a very intentional way purposeful. that is deeply yeah. <laughs> unsettling. Um, but, but so as we talk about Ben, let's talk about the turn in the film and the interpretations of it, because I think that's when we can really get into talking about Ben. So let's start with, I want to talk a little bit more about the, the sort of like speech that he gives about burning greenhouses. Um, because the way that he's talking is so sinister Mm-hmm. Now, earlier in the film, Jong Soo has found in Ben's bathroom a drawer full of like trinkets and bracelets that belong to women, it appears, as well as a box full of makeup. And right. so and and I think we're initially we are obviously throughout the movie supposed to be like Ben's a little bit unsettling. Like we don't really mm-hmm. know what his deal is. So this whole time that he's talking about burning down greenhouses. I was like, all of this is a metaphor for murdering women. He's like talking mm-hmm. openly about murdering women. And he's like, I do it without a trace. And the Korean police don't care. And it's like, it doesn't hurt yeah, he's like, The next one's going to be really close to your home. Really close to you. Like, you go ahead and keep your eye out. Like, the way that he's telling that is so unsettling. And so, like, I definitely already read it that way. For sure. And then... Um, when they are leaving is when Jung Soo tells Jaime that only whores undress in front of men. And then we don't see her anymore after that scene. He can't get a hold of her on her phone. He goes to her apartment and it's not 
empty, but most mm-hmm. of her belongings are gone and it's very clean. And yeah. her cat is gone. And so he immediately suspects that Ben had something to do with her disappearance and he starts sort of like stalking Ben to prove that Ben did something to her. Um, and he is sort of like becoming increasingly erratic and like following Mm -hmm. Ben everywhere. Um, and he goes to Ben's apartment, Ben, he's sitting outside. Ben sees him as Hannah alluded to Ben comes outside to the truck and is like, Oh, I was just walking home from the store and I saw your truck. I thought it was your truck. It looked, uh, distinct. I think probably what he meant is like, it looks super out of place in my fancy ass neighborhood. Um, Uh And invites him inside. And while Jiang Su is there, he goes in the bathroom and he sees a watch that looks like the watch he gave to Jaime in the drawer full of trinkets. And Ben now has a cat. And the cat seemingly responded to the name of Jaime's cat. Now it's important that we never saw the cat that Jaime <laughs> said she had. Yeah. So if she had a cat, we don't know what it looked like. So this is not like a and direct her landlord's like, I don't allow cats. I wouldn't know if there was a cat. But there was right. cat shit under the bed. So There was cat shit. And, and the food was disappearing. He was feeding the cat for like two weeks and the food was disappearing. Yeah. Um, so in the film's climax, uh, Jung-soo and Ben meet on the side of the road and Jung-soo stabs Ben multiple times before putting him in his Porsche and then lighting the Porsche on fire and driving away. Yeah. Um, So at that point, it's this really interesting thing where like, we don't know for certain that Ben, that Jaime is dead. Like she could have just decided to leave. Like we don't know. And there's been all these things throughout the movie where like, she's the one who said that she was this girl he knew growing up, but like he didn't recognize her. And, and the she story tells he tells this, later her family is like, that didn't happen. Yeah. She tells a story about falling in a well and he goes to her family and they're like, that never happened. There was not a well on the property. Um, so she does not seem to be a super trustworthy character. So it's entirely possible that she may have just decided to move on and go somewhere else. Um, and the director said in this Hollywood reporter interview that like, it's, as far as he's concerned, we don't actually know that the stabbing even happened. Like that could have just been in Jung Su's mind. Oh, yeah. Whoa. So I want to know because if you think about it, there's that scene right before that too, where he's like, you know, everybody's favorite, um, jerking off and crying. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Everyone's favorite combo. It's a two for one. Yeah, and he but he's like imagining her like mm-hmm. jerking him off. Um and he's crying like thinking about it. Um in her bed. He's like going back to her apartment and is laying in her bed in her imagining her on bed with no sheets on it. Yeah. Um but that's a good point. Like how do we really know like that that part even happened or if he just dreamed it or thought about it or fantasized about it? I did think it was really interesting, like, right before that, because we are following him up until that point, mm-hmm. um, we don't really see too many, we don't really see any other characters outside of things that he would be seeing. Right. Um, and so there is that scene beforehand where, first of all, this, I can't believe I went this long without mentioning that the score in this movie was so 
good and so freaky and so well done. That sort of like almost like wood block, but like creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So they're like there's like that music as he's having his like crying jerk off sesh, and then we see like Ben putting makeup on his current girlfriend, and she looks very like unsure. Yeah, but that's from like his one of the only kit. times. Yeah, that's like one of the only times we see something that the narrator isn't directly a part of. Mm-hmm. So he could very well just be imagining that, and it's not even really, really happening. Oh, right. Well, and here's an interesting, like, this just came to me just now, but one of the things Whoa. that I, one of the things that I noticed watching the movie and then read about is, like, in the sequence where he stabs Ben, um, Ben, for the most part, doesn't really fight him off a ton. Like, mm-hmm. He's trying to get away, but then it seems like he sees the inevitability of this and sort of, like, holds on to Jiangsu. Now, like, I'm not saying that that would not happen. Like, you are in shock. But, like, he's sort of, like, holding on to him. And for a moment, it's, like, a very intimate, like, charged embrace between the two of them. Ooh, yeah. Um, And so a part of me wonders if, like, maybe this... Maybe it feels like I'm reading too much into everything. But now I just like. Mm, don't even worry. I think wherever you're about to go, I'm already there. I'm wondering if like. like they just want to fuck each other, right? Yes, but also like <laughs> he's. Maybe it's not him imagining uh, Ben putting makeup on his girlfriend. Like maybe Ben like steals things from girls that he dates and puts makeup on girls that he dates because like he doesn't feel comfortable doing that himself. Mm. And so he's like, that's how he gets close to femininity and so like that's why we see that interaction between the two of them like maybe it was never about Jaime I mean I don't think that's necessarily that far off because there's the scene that's very like Patrick Bateman where he's putting his contacts in Mm -hmm. in the mirror but then he just like touches his face Mm -hmm. in a very like light I guess like not really feminine but I mean you could read it that way sure so I think that that could be a fair read on it I also think, like, for me, and a lot of times when I watch, like, most movies where I'm mostly focused on men, especially if they're attractive and their energy's good. Yeah. Like, oh, wouldn't it be great if they just fucked? Like, wouldn't it be great if they just (laughs) kissed? I definitely thought that, like, their final showdown and when they stabbed each other, um, or when he stabbed him, but the way he clung on to him, there Mm -hmm. was definitely some intimacy or sexuality there it felt um, like it for sure it oh, felt very sure. charged because i also think it's like this movie is so masculine and so charged up by the masculinity that there's like a release of it within the stabbing and it's like you know obviously ben's like dying and he doesn't want to die he like crawls away but then he kind of clings onto him because he's like almost like grateful for the release. And I think that that's sort of like the bigger point of the movie is that like this um, aggressive box that like men are put into just as women are, but in a different way where like you can't really express your feelings or you can't express um, your sexuality if it doesn't, if it, you know, goes away from the norm in any way. Um, Mm -hmm. 
where it's like this like stabbing in the same way we talk about it in horror movies where it's like a very phallic thing is a release in some way like they're both feeling that release of Mm -hmm. their own like the toxic masculinity that's like holding their characters down at the same time for sure does that make sense it does and like as we're talking about this I've been putting together in my head a series of supernatural episodes we can watch together so that we can have a really hearty discussion about the bisexuality of Dean Mm. which is like not canon in the show but like it has to be a thing it's like it's unbelievable anyway Mm. we'll get to it I just started watching Love is Blind on Netflix and that's like okay yeah okay um good thing we don't cover reality TV on this podcast because I could not do it if only because I'll say it once, I've, or I've said it once, I'll say it again for the millionth time. Summer House on Bravo. There's a straight male on there who has openly admitted the best head that he ever got was from a man. And he is very confident in his sexuality. And I think he is doing God's work by putting it out there that it's okay to be a straight man. And, you know, get your dick sucked by a man every once in a while. Yeah, dude, like, I'm here for that. And, and just so everyone <laughs> knows, I don't... The only reality TV I watch is Jersey Shore, which is not without its problems. But which is like the only reality TV I don't watch. I don't watch yeah. MTV reality except for the challenge. Um, but I would love there's no, there's few things that I love more in this life than watching a reality show with Hannah that she's obsessed with because she will like deliver a treatise <laughs> to you. Uh, I was staying with Hannah last year when she had to have a medical procedure done. And I literally videotaped her while she she was having a colonoscopy done. (laughs) And she, she, or I guess that was when you had an endoscopy. Hannah lives a lot of lives. Um, They were going to put a camera in one of your holes. I just couldn't remember which one it was. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You said I could say it. So (laughs) Hannah literally... uh, made me watch so much uh, Desperate Housewives, Real Housewives, and I, like, have a video of her on my phone explaining to me all of the interconnected dynamics of the different housewives of whatever show we were watching on my phone. Um, And it just makes me very happy, even though that stuff's not really my jam. But you'll watch it with me when you're with me. Yeah, I'll watch it with you. It's the kind of thing that's, like, fun to watch with you because I can just be like, what? That's crazy. But, like... And I love to play the game of guess who's how old? Yeah, I'm always wrong. Never tell. I'm always wrong. Um, um, over the weekend, I was trying to take a nap, and like I was, I found this um, super cut of one of my favorite Real Housewives of Atlanta. Although she's not technically a Real Housewife, but she basically is. But it's a super cut of Marlo just like being messy and like tearing people apart. And I was listening to it to take a nap, and. My boyfriend was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of questions, although it's not surprising. He was like, you're trying to sleep with this on? It was like a super cut of her yelling at people in different contexts, but I know what they all are, so yeah, you it was like soothing to me. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I mean, it, I don't, but I do. Um, so, Hannah, how many Bloody Marys out of five would you give burning I'm going to give Burning um, four Bloody Marys and one olive floating in a beer bag. 
Oh my. Which is like 4.75? It, like, basically a 4.5, but I want it to be a little glossier than like that. Like a scotch extra. I, I did really like the movie, and I think it's a worthwhile watch, but it is very long, and it's not yeah. something I would necessarily watch again, so I can't, like, you know. It could be jump. shorter. Could be shorter. There were a couple things that I was like, I, especially once I finished it, I was like, now that I know that this narrator was unreliable, I don't feel like I needed to see him masturbate so many times to figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> I think, like, this movie, like, it's clear that this director likes to let the actors, like, settle into a scene and really just, like, go for a long time. And I think we get a lot about a character in those scenes. I just feel like we didn't need as many of them. I totally um, agree with you. So I'm just about on the same page. I'm going to give this movie a solid four Bloody Marys across the board. Um, if you had asked me when I finished, I would have been like three maybe. But I feel better about it now. Now that I had some sleep, I feel a lot less cranky. <laughs> okay, this week's In Ladier News is a headline sort of that ripped across the internet this week, Hannah, that you may have not have seen. I'm ready. I feel like a lot of times, I feel like a lot of times our in later news is a real bummer, and this one's just going to warm your damn heart. So. I'm ready. We learned, the internet learned, in recent times, <laughs> that American hero Stacey Abrams is a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. Now, Hannah, do you know who Stacey Abrams is? If I don't. It's okay if you don't. I looked up some background facts for you just in case. I think there are okay, going to be plenty of people listening who don't know who she is. Okay, because I, I don't. I didn't know who she is. So if you don't know who Stacey Abrams is, she is a politician from Georgia. She served on the House of Representatives from 2006 to 2017, and she was a minority leader from 2011 to 2017. People will most likely know Stacey Abrams because she ran for governor um, of Georgia in 2018, but she lost to Brian Kemp. The problem is that Brian Kemp was the secretary of state at the time, which means he oversaw the elections. <laughs> um, so she has never conceded a loss in that campaign because Georgia, like a lot of states everywhere, but especially in the South has a terrible record of purging the, the voting polls and keeping minority voters off the ticket. Stacey Abrams is an African-American woman um, mm. and feels like had people been allowed to register to vote fairly and district districts been drawn fairly, she would have been elected. Um, so she was the first African-American female major party gubernatorial nominee in the United States, all of the United States. Um and in February of 2019, she was the first African-American woman to deliver a response to the State of the Union. So Stacey Whoa. Abrams is a goddamn hero. Uh, I, we, I think a lot of people expect very good things from her in the future as far as politics go. If you're not aware of her, she uh, helped found an organization called Fair Fight, which, quote, brings awareness to the public on election reform, advocates for election reform at all levels, and engages in other voter education programs and communications. So, like, she is someone who is all about just making sure that people are um, educated at, about their rights to vote and about why their vote matters and 
trying to make sure that the right to vote is spread to as many people as possible. So she's a champ and a hardcore Buffy fan. Yes. Love it. Someday we will do an episode trying to sum up our love of Buffy, but it's going to be hard because we love Buffy a lot. If you are interested in getting in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter. We are at the number 28 days under. Nope. (laughs) God damn it. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at 28 days lady underscore ER or email us. The email address is 28 days later at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Phillies Femme. That's Phillies like the baseball team, Femme like a French lady. Hannah does not use the internet and has never seen a computer, so don't try to find her there. <laughs> I'm just smacking a rock right now. Yeah, and hoping <laughs> it's it comes a miracle out okay. you can even hear me. But it just shows the true power of Jesus Christ if you truly believe. Wow, that really took a turn. I feel like people <laughs> will not know that that's a joke. <laughs> Um, always pee after sex. Clink, clink. (laughs) That was the best ending of all time.